So we don't draw squares on a map just because we have politicians drawing lines and uh, squares aren't as good for the politicians as distorted districts that serve their various nefarious purposes. The lead opinion found that that was contrived and a distraction from the administration's true purposes. For now, anyway, the courts are holding as a check against government malfeasance. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out titled The Sled. And before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Well, last month, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled in two highly watched cases, in Rucho versus Common Cause and Lamone versus Benesek. The high court ruled federal courts do not have a role in deciding partisan gerrymandering claims. And in the Department of Commerce versus New York, SCOTUS blocked the Trump administration's request to add a controversial citizenship question to the U.S. Census. So what kind of legal implications could these two rulings have on the legal and political landscape of the United States? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss these two cases, take a look at gerrymandering, the 2020 census citizenship question, President Trump's fight, how the census affects gerrymandering, and what next steps are up. We have a great show for you today to do that, and our first guest is Nicholas Stephanopoulos. He is the professor of law at the University of Chicago School of Law. He has been involved in several litigation efforts as well, including the first successful partisan gerrymandering lawsuit in more than 30 years. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks for having me. And our next guest is Dale Ho. Dale is the director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. He supervises the ACLU's voting rights litigation and advocacy work nationwide. One of Dale's cases include the Department of Commerce versus New York case that we talked about. And he argued before the Supreme Court, and we'll be discussing that today. Welcome to the show, Dale. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, Dale, let's start with you. And can you give us a little bit of background about the uh, Department of Commerce case so that we have the context? Sure. The Department of Commerce case is about the Trump administration's effort to put a question about citizenship on the 2020 census. It would be the first time since 1950 that the census questionnaire that goes to every household in America would have a citizenship question. And the concern here is that the census, which is a population count of every living person in the United States and is the basis for apportioning political representation seats in the House of Representatives, votes in the Electoral College, and the allocation of $900 billion in federal funds annually. The concern is that that critically important population count would be rendered inaccurate because a citizenship question, all experts, including the Census Bureau, believe, would cause millions of people not to respond to the census. We'd get an inaccurate count. The people who don't respond would be clustered in particular states. 
um, states like California, Florida, Texas, New York, which would all be at risk of losing a seat in Congress. And so uh, we challenged it, and uh, the Supreme Court recently ruled that the question couldn't be on. Nick, let's talk a little bit about the other case and give a little background for, on that, please. Yeah, sure. So there, there are really three issues in the partisan gerrymandering case. Number one, is partisan gerrymandering a kind of claim that the federal courts can hear in the first place? Uh, i.e., is it a non-justiciable or a justiciable issue? Second issue is, if the federal courts can hear partisan gerrymandering cases, what's the right test for distinguishing valid from invalid district maps? And then third, once we have a test, is the North Carolina congressional map that was at issue in Rucho and the Maryland district that was also at issue in a, in a twin case, uh, are those districts or district maps constitutional or not? So there's a whole set of issues that were presented in the, the partisan gerrymandering case. Dale, how did we get to this point? I mean, what is the, uh, obviously the purpose is to win elections, but how is it that we just don't draw squares on a map? How did gerrymandering come about? I, I should probably defer to Nick on that one. Um, if, yeah, if, I can, I can, I can hop in there. Uh, you know, a lot of folks argue we should just draw squares on a map, but for essentially all of American history, we've had a, a norm that uh, politicians get to draw district maps, that redistricting is legislation just like any other. And so because politicians are self-interested, there's always been the risk that they'll draw district lines, not for the public good, but instead for one problematic purpose or another. Entrenching of incumbents is a possibility. Uh, the disadvantage of a racial uh, or ethnic group is a possibility. Uh, and so is the disadvantage of the opposing party. And that's the kind of scenario that presented itself in these cases. Uh, you know, have the district lines been drawn in such a way as to significantly and durably disadvantage the opposing side? Uh, so we don't draw squares on a map just because we have politicians drawing lines and uh, squares aren't as good for the politicians as distorted districts that serve their various nefarious purposes. So, Dale, how did the Supreme Court look at this when you argued the case? What was the responses that you got from the justices? Well, the census case, you know, didn't directly involve the issue of how the district lines are drawn, but it did involve the number of representatives that every state gets in Congress, and then obviously the number of districts. And I think, you know, our concern has long been that this was an effort to sort of turbocharge gerrymandering efforts, that if you don't get an accurate population count, and particularly you get an undercount of Latinx communities, um, immigrant communities, then you're going to end up with districts that, while on paper look like they have equal numbers of people, are actually quite malapportioned. And we were also concerned that this might be an effort to try to facilitate redistricting that's done not on the basis of total population numbers, but on the basis of citizens only. And remarkably, after the oral argument in this case, some documents came to light that uh, had not been produced to us in discovery, but suggested that that was precisely the purpose of putting this question on the census to aid um, Republican gerrymandering efforts. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, wouldn't it make more sense to put the list of voters 
into that equation instead of the citizens because they're not contemporaneous? Um, well, sure. I mean, you know, if your if your goal is to have equal numbers of voters in every district, and I think that has not actually been the goal with the one person one vote doctrine pretty much throughout its existence, um, then you're right. Putting the total number of citizens or equalizing the total number of citizens in every district wouldn't do that. A lot of citizens themselves either can't or don't vote. They can't vote because they're under the age of 18 or they're disqualified because of a criminal conviction or aren't registered to vote or are registered, but simply don't vote. So the notion that you're going to sort of equalize the number of voters in every district by equalizing citizens doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But I think the fundamental point here is that one person, one vote has never actually meant what it seems to suggest. We've never tried to equalize districts based on numbers of voters, but rather based on numbers of people, um, reflecting a recognition that representatives should all represent an equal number of constituents rather than compete for an equal number of votes. Where does the basis for the census question come into this? I mean, what I understand that we want to get, uh, you know, we want to know who are citizens, but given that they don't really match up, Nick, what's your thought? Uh, I mean, this might be better for for Dale, but you know, the the whole debate has been over what the the rationale of the administration was in in wanting to add the citizenship question. You know, they they asserted that their goal was better enforcing the Federal Voting Rights Act, uh, except there's no actual need for fine grained citizenship data in order to enforce the VRA. And so because the professed motive is so improbable, that's why everyone suspects uh, the motives that the Dale was referring to, namely trying to uh, deter certain people, probably Latino people from filling out the census, and then also uh, giving uh, line drawers in the next redistricting cycle, the ability to turbocharge gerrymandering by switching to new forms of district drawing, where the goal is not to equalize the number of persons across districts, but uh, instead it's equalize the number of eligible voters or uh, uh, citizens over 18 or something like that. You know, Dale, the one person, one vote thing sounds like a nice cliche, and, and perhaps it is, but where's the genesis of that? Is there a provision in the Constitution that guarantees every person a vote? Well, the one person, one vote doctrine emerged in the 1960s. I think the probably the most significant case um, is Reynolds versus Sims, which found that under the 14th Amendment, states, when they draw state legislative districts, have to have equal numbers of people, roughly equal numbers of people in those districts. And, you know, this was a time when, you know, there was dramatic variance in state legislative districts in terms of the number of people in them. California, I think at the time, gave a state Senate seat to every county. And you had Los Angeles County with, you know, over a million people. And you had some counties in California with um, under 20,000 people. And the Supreme Court found that's not consistent with the equal protection guarantees of the 14th Amendment and uh, the notion that everyone's entitled to some kind of equality of representation. You know, you go back to the founding and there's a recognition that representation in the House should at some level, maybe not perfectly proportionally, but at some level should reflect the number of inhabitants of each state. And that included, just to get to an earlier point we were talking about, that included non-voters, right? Women at the founding couldn't vote in any state other than New Jersey, um, and of course were counted. People who couldn't meet property requirements 
in states couldn't vote and, and, and they were counted as well. And, and, and so were children. So there's this notion that representation should derive from the people, not the voters, but the people. Government of the people, by the people, and for the people requires some understanding of how many people there are and some equalization of each person's individual dignity in the representative process. That almost argues in favor of everybody being able to vote regardless of their age or their qualifications. Well, there's this notion of you know, it's funny. Sometimes we talk about this um, idea of virtual representation, people who are represented in a system of government, but don't actually have voting power. And part of what, you know, the uh, the American Revolution was about was rejecting the notion that Americans were virtually represented um, in the British government. But it's We've never been able to escape that idea entirely. There's always been some notion that voting should be limited to a particular group of people, and that group has broadened considerably since the founding, but it hasn't, it's never been extended to include everyone, say, including, you know, minors, right, children. But there's this notion that even if people can't vote, they ought to still have their interests represented in a Republican form of government, and we've never rejected that idea. Well, Nick, not to go off topic, but, you know, Citizens United and the ability of corporations to be able to donate to political action campaigns, is that something that that uh, will become an issue in the future? Is that we play into that in, as part of this conversation? Uh, I mean, that's yet another threat to a sort of vibrant democracy that represents everybody effectively. Right. Like uh, our, our democracy is under threat from a number of different forces. A bad census count is one of those forces. Partisan gerrymandering is, is another force. Voter disenfranchisement uh, is, is another threat. And so is unlimited uh, corporate spending and, uh, and spending by the, the richest uh, individuals in our, in our country, too. The fear with unlimited corporate and and affluent individual spending is that then politicians, candidates will do what the spenders want. They won't do what the people want and will end up having uh, policies and laws and governance that don't reflect the will of the electorate, but rather reflect the will of the uh, huge donors and spenders. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of the fears that we have about about gerrymandering also apply to campaign finance. Uh, you know, in the same way that gerrymandering enables uh, districts to not reflect what the people want, unlimited spending in elections can have some similar consequences. But, you know, sadly, courtesy of Citizens United, we have to live with the unlimited corporate spending, at least until the composition of the Supreme Court changes. And now because of Rousseau, we also have to live with partisan gerrymandering. So, you know, the, the court over the last decade has uh, green-lighted both of these abuses that are uh, undermining a vibrant representative democracy in the country. Well, gentlemen, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. 
try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com with the code L2L10. That's L2L, the number 10. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Nicholas Stephanopoulos, professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School, and Dale Ho, the director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Progress. We've been discussing gerrymandering and the 2020 citizenship question recently ruled on by the Supreme Court. So, Dale, how is the uh, one of the things that we've talked about on Lawyer to Lawyer is the stacking of the Supreme Court with conservative justices? Has has uh, President Trump's recent appointments had an effect on the outcome of these cases? Well, um, in the census case, both of President Trump's appointees sided with the administration. The decision still was five four in favor of the plaintiffs. So, you know, I, neither of them were able to cast a decisive vote. Um, Chief Justice Roberts sided with the liberal members of the court. And, you know, what I think is pretty remarkable about his opinion is that this case was under the Federal Administrative Procedure Act. And generally, there is a presumption of regularity of the government's actions that um, we take the government basically at its word, even when the government doesn't necessarily substantiate what it's doing with, you know, evidence or like uh, affidavits or declarations or something like that. Um, Here, Chief Justice Roberts um, found that there were enough irregularities here to not simply doubt, but disbelieve the government's stated reason for wanting to put a citizenship question on the census, which, as Nick said earlier, was to enforce the Voting Rights Act. The lead opinion found that that was contrived and a distraction from the administration's true purposes. So, um, you know, for now, anyway, the court's are holding as a check against government malfeasance. You know, one of the shows that we did earlier was on the Kilo versus New London, city of New London, the eminent domain case where the town condemned a woman's home to give it over to a real estate developer. And we learned from that interview that I believe it was the Southern Law Center that did a significant public relations campaign about the power of eminent domain as part of the appeal. And it was groundwork laid across the country through articles that were published, uh, opinions that were uh, written for various uh, large city newspapers, and just a, a, a general grassroots campaign that, that kind of surprised me. But the lawyers that were in that case thought that it benefited their case and kind of turned the tide about the power of eminent domain and the and the government. Has anything occurred like that that you've seen in either the citizenship question or the gerrymandering question? I mean, I, I've seen a lot of uh, articles on gerrymandering as a consequence of this, but they seem to have come out afterward, not before. Uh, I mean, I can chime in there. The, uh, there's been a lot of attention on gerrymandering over the last two to three years because uh, even before the Supreme Court's decision in Rousseau a couple weeks ago, there had been a whole series of successful lower court decisions. Uh, so lower courts had struck down maps on partisan gerrymandering grounds in Michigan and Ohio and North Carolina and Maryland and Wisconsin. And every one of those cases generated its own little burst of publicity uh, and so there had been a pretty effective public relations campaign geared off of the, the litigation victories. But I think the trouble is that 
no matter how good your PR campaign is, uh, ultimately you've got to have a receptive audience on the Supreme Court. And uh, on the issue of partisan gerrymandering, Justice Kennedy, who stepped down a year ago, may well have been a receptive audience. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh is not. Chief Justice Roberts is not a, re- a receptive audience. Uh, and so it didn't matter that you know, the media attention was 20 to 1 against partisan gerrymandering. Uh, it ultimately didn't matter that uh, if you looked at the amicus briefs filed uh, with the court, uh, again, there were maybe five times more filed uh, on the anti-gerrymandering side rather than on the pro side. But again, you know, if you don't have justices who are uh, swing voters, who are looking to the pulse of the community, none of that ultimately matters. And it didn't ultimately matter in Ruscio. Well, Nick, it seems like, you know, not to be kind of bane about it, but it, in the sense that the gerrymandering just doesn't smell right. It just doesn't sound as if the people that are in power can redraw the lines to keep themselves in power by simply shifting boundaries and by adjusting the the boundaries of their districts according to the number of voters that are on their same party. You know, that law school kind of thing where it doesn't pass the smell test, uh, the basic review of it. How is it that the Supreme Court can get past this kind of ugly, almost cronyism uh, I don't really, or nepotism. I'm not really sure the right adjective to describe it, but it just doesn't sound right. How does this, the justices that's, that sided on behalf of the partisan uh, gerrymandering, what do they use to justify their opinions? Yeah, you're, you're right that the partisan gerrymandering you know, is and ought to be unjustifiable. And uh, a court that cares about the state of American democracy should not be able to find a way to green light gerrymandering indefinitely and in as extreme a form as mapmakers can possibly come up with. So how did Roberts do it? His main move was to say that uh, some pursuit of partisan advantage is permissible in redistricting. And so because some partisanship is okay, Roberts says, there's no way to distinguish too much partisanship, which is not okay, from some partisanship, which is okay. That's his main argument, that even though partisan gerrymandering is undemocratic and can be unconstitutional, uh, there's simply no way for the federal courts to draw a clear, consistent line between permissible, relatively low levels of partisanship and impermissible higher levels of partisanship. That's the whole move. You know, that's that's how the court rationalizes to itself why it's going to step back and do nothing in the face of this blatantly undemocratic practice. And we know that Congress has the right to overrule the Supreme Court and pass a contrary law. Dale, how does the Fair Act map act play into this? And we'll get to Trump's end run in just a minute. I can't wait to talk about that. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I mean, this wouldn't really be a, a situation where this, the, where Congress would be, say, overruling a Supreme Court decision, but maybe creating a legal barrier where the Supreme Court found there isn't one currently existing. So the court found the Constitution doesn't prohibit partisan gerrymandering, but there's nothing to stop Congress from passing a law that does precisely that. And that's one of the things that Chief Justice Roberts noted in his opinion, that this is an issue that, in his view anyway, can be resolved best through the political process, through something like legislation. Now, query whether or not that's a realistic hypothesis, given that Congress 
is elected from districts which themselves may be gerrymandered. And I'm sure Nick has some thoughts there as well. But this is at least, I think, one situation where, notwithstanding the Supreme Court's decision, there is, at least in theory, a congressional remedy. Well, let's talk about what Trump is trying to do with the citizenship question. He says, heck with the Supreme Court, I'm just going to issue an executive order and do an end run. Can he do that? Well, here, I think he can't. And the differences are multitude. The Supreme Court didn't find, you know, that it needed more guidance here from one of the political branches before it could act, which is, I think, one way of reading the suggestion and Chief Justice Roberts' opinion on the partisan gerrymandering cases that Congress could pass a law banning partisan gerrymandering. Here, the Supreme Court's decision said basically two things. One, we took this case when we did and heard it when we did and decided it when we did because the government told us it needed to be decided by June 30th. And two, we decide against the government because we find that the government was not truthful about the reasons why it wanted this question on the census. And that's one of the requirements of the Federal Administrative Procedures Act, that you have to be honest and candid about the reasons for a federal agency um, making the decision that it's making. That, I think, really puts the administration in a box in numerous ways. First, the case was heard before June 30th because the government insisted that no changes to the census questionnaire could be made after that date. Um, It's now too late under the government's own asserted timeline to make any further changes to the census questionnaire. Second, the court said that the government had lied about why it was wanting the question on the census. You know, the government can't now spend days or weeks coming up with a new reason to put the question on. That's just another form of after-the-fact, post-hoc finding a a reason for a decision that was already made, um, which is the definition of pretext and unlawful under the Supreme Court's opinion. So I I think the opinion's been misread a little bit. There was some media commentary suggesting that Chief Justice Roberts had invited commerce to come back with a new decision and new reasoning. And I, I think that's just not an accurate reading of the opinion. Well, gentlemen, this has been a fantastic discussion and tremendously interesting. We've come to the end of the show. It's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts along with your contact information. So, Nick, let's go with you first. Great, thanks. Uh, so, in terms of final thoughts, I would just say that uh, you know, Ruscio and the partisan gerrymandering decision is really a dark day for American democracy. It means that in the next redistricting cycle, there is literally no gerrymander so extreme that a federal court will strike it down. And so we're likely to see more aggressive gerrymandering techniques than we've ever witnessed before. The use of computer algorithms, re-redistricting, you know, tweaking district lines every couple years to make sure the districts uh, don't flip against the, the desires of the, the line drawers, maybe even non-contiguous districts, joining a, a cluster of voters over here with a cluster of voters over there without any attempt to geographically connect the two clusters. All of those techniques and more are now permissible and are not going to be policed uh, by the federal courts. So I think that you know, if democracy means uh, the will of the people ultimately prevails, uh, the Supreme Court has now given the green light for democracy 
to uh, to not prevail, to be distorted uh, in the next decade. And that's that's a real tragedy for people who care about the, the state of democracy uh, in this country. Great. And your contact information? Uh, sure. So uh, my email address is nsteph, N-S-T-E-P-H, at uchicago.edu. I can also reach my phone. Uh, my, my office number is 773-702-4226. Great. Thank you very much. And Dale, your final thoughts and contact information? Sure. I share Nick's profound sadness about the partisan gerrymandering decisions. Um, I think it's uh, very unfortunate and a real problem in a way that wouldn't necessarily have been true to the same extent 20 or 30 years ago before the development of the very sophisticated tools that exist today to gerrymander with a great degree of precision. And, you know, it's a really, really unfortunate decision. The census decision is, I think, however, cause for some optimism about the judiciary continuing to serve as a check on malfeasance by the executive branch. You know, the Trump administration tried to get away with doing something that would have been very, very damaging to our democracy and to fair representation. They did it with, I think, a pretty straight-faced lie. I don't think there was anyone in the courtroom the day that I argued the case that believed that the Trump administration was interested in enforcing the Voting Rights Act, which is what their stated reason was for putting the question on the census. And Chief Justice Roberts called him out, you know, uh, said that the court is not required to exhibit naivete that ordinary people don't have. And uh, that's a good thing going forward as a host of administration actions, everything from ending DACA to you know, child separation policy to conditions at the border are all being justified by the government by reasons that simply don't pass the laugh test. And and hopefully the courts will continue to be a check on all of those human rights uh, and civil rights violations. If folks want to reach me, um, you can reach me via email at dale.ho at aclu.org or um, follow me on Twitter at dale underscore e underscore ho. Great. And that's H-O, right? That's right. Great. Thank you very much. It's interesting to see the Supreme Court finally acknowledge what almost all lawyers admit after they graduate from law school, that we are no longer reasonable people. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. If you'd like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.